Hi, everyone. This is Laurie Handlers, and you are listening to Tantra Cafe, a program for spiritual enlightenment. Welcome back. Om Shanti 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 and Namaste. Ever wonder what it would be like to have more than one partner? Listen, I wonder how anyone can keep it straight. It seems to me that two people have challenges galore. At least I've had challenges in my one-on-one relationships. And so add another person and maybe even another. And what some people say is that you get something called polyagony. My guest tonight claims to be able to shed some light on this polyamory subject. She seems to be able to tell us something about jealousy and possessiveness. Actually, she can tell us something about jealousy and possessiveness in relationships and how you could go about opening up your relationship to have possibly another partner or more. Dr. Deborah Annapol was the first person to coin the phrase polyamory. Twenty-some-odd years ago, she wrote the first definitive book on the subject, and now it seems to be a household word. As a matter of fact, there have been news specials on it. There's been plenty of writing about it on the Internet, and I even heard that CBS is going to be doing a piece on it very, very soon. So it's my pleasure to welcome Deborah to my show tonight and to really get into this subject and find out how do people make this kind of thing work. Deborah, I know you're working on a new book. I know I caught you in the act of working on a new book, and you're talking in the new book about jealousy and possessiveness. Before we get there, can you just tell us how you stumbled upon the term polyamory, and what motivated you to write a book about it 20 years ago? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm happy this worked out, and I would like to take credit for the term polyamory, but actually that belongs to Morning Glory Cell. Uh, Oberon and Morning Glory um, fairly well known as the founders of the Church of All Worlds, which is a neo-pagan church um, that was based on Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. And that novel, along with Robert Grimmer's Herod Experiment, really uh, touched a nerve in, in a lot of people growing up in the 60s and 70s. And I guess I was one of them. Me um, too. I was... <laughs> Me yeah. too. I didn't work it's, it out like that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, most people didn't, but a lot of people had that had that dream. It it struck a chord. And I even though I uh had a, a pretty wild life as a as a young person growing up in the sixties I didn't really consciously think about having more than one partner in a relationship that was ongoing until I was almost 30. I'd been doing it since I was 15, but somehow in my mind, I didn't know I was doing it because I didn't have a word for it. And when I finally put two and two together, or one and one and one together, or (laughs) or whatever, I was using the very awkward term responsible non-monogamy. Now, what was nice about that term is that it wasn't so sexy that um, a lot of people glommed onto it and started using it to mean whatever they wanted it to mean, which is kind of what's happened with the word polyamory, which literally means many loves. But I think these days the picture that comes up in most people's minds, well, let me ask you, what's the picture that comes up in your mind when you think of polyamory? Thank you so much for asking me that. I, uh, It's the last thing I want to be identified with. I've, well, listen, just being identified with Tantra has its challenges because there are so many people who use Tantra as an excuse to have irresponsible sex, as far as I'm concerned. Like they become tantric and all of a sudden... They have a new buzzword, and a lot of people who are really in the art of prostitution, not that I, listen, prostitution's okay, but I'd like people to call it that and not call it Tantra when it isn't. Um, 
So back to polyamory. Well, in my classes, Deborah, when people come and I say, what's your intention? In my very first level bliss class, usually the women say, I'm looking for my life partner. I'm looking for the one. And the men usually say, I'm looking for many. And so what that tells me is is that because I, I haven't met that many women who say that they're poly. Usually women are still stuck on looking for the one. So what that tells me is that we're at a we're at an impasse. We're at an impasse. Men are saying they want more than one woman, which I think men want more than one woman anyway. And then women seem to still be stuck and a few more than ever, I guess, but still in the in the numbers, not that many are saying, well, maybe I too could have more than one. But mostly I think it's a sham for some people. It's just about being irresponsible and causing lots of emotional damage and and trying to be honest about it. But it's still damaging. That's how it seems to me. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I think there is a lot of... Um damage going on a lot and it's you know I mean it takes two people right I don't want to really set it up that uh, women or or men whose partners want polyamory are being victimized because it really takes two to tango as we know but there's a lot of very dysfunctional relating going on under the name of polyamory we'll put it that way Yes, and, I think that's fair. I think that's really fair, much fairer. Because it isn't just yeah. men, it isn't just women. I, I agree with you. Yeah. So, you know, the way I see it, partly what's going on is that uh, as as a whole, and I don't want to say all humans, but um, I'll just talk about Western cultures because that's what I grew up in and that's probably who's listening for the most part. Um, we grew up in an atmosphere of sexual repression. Adolescents, who, as we all know, have very strong sex drive, are told that it's not okay to express it. They should, at least when you and I were growing up, I'm not sure how true this is anymore, but... Um, the repression is maybe lighter, but still there. Very few parents uh, really urge their teenagers to go out and explore sex and say, you know, here's here's the birth control and here's um, here's the tantric room to experiment in and go for it. <laughs> wait a second. Wait a second. What they have now is just say no. They don't even say here's the birth control. They have just say no, and they have. Well, that's here's the that's in the school. Yeah. yeah, here's how you're going to die. You know that it's they're scared out of their wits. Right. Yeah. The whole AIDS thing has um, put its own twist on it. I just I do think though that um, it's it's become much more acceptable in you know since let's say I was a teenager in the '60s, it's become much more acceptable for young people, old people, anybody to live together without being married. It's become much more acceptable to have a committed sexual relationship without a legal marriage. But it's still really considered not okay to explore sexually. And I think in to explore in a loving, caring way, you know, not to to use people sexually, but to be more playful about it, to, you know, to to communicate that I I probably am not going to spend the rest of my life with you, and I'm attracted, I I like you, I love you, I'd like to mm, explore the sexual dimension of our connection. I think that kind of communication is very appropriate for young people who are getting to know themselves sexually. And what's happened is that because of the whole guilt, shame, and 
fear of death thing, a lot of people don't really have the guts to do that exploration in their youth, and maybe they explore a little bit, and they jump into a committed relationship, and 25 years, 30 years later, they realize, well, my life is is uh, more than half over, and I haven't had a chance to explore sexually. I want to <laughs> do that before I die. Right, right. Well, you know, and wait so, a second. If we go back, though, I mean, you and I are, are contemporaries. If we go back... I remember that it was very fashionable to date. So I know, for example, when I was in high school, I had a boyfriend here and there, but in between boyfriends, I dated a lot of boys. A lot of different boys asked me out, and I, you know, I dated boys from different schools. And then in college as well, there was a time when I was a freshman or a sophomore when I was dating six or seven different guys, and they knew about each other. There wasn't any... There was nothing to hide. There was, I wasn't having sex with them. But I was dating them. I was kissing them. There was there was a little something, something going on. And I think now, I think people just, they're so repressed that they just glom on to the first one each time and then see if that's going to work. And then see if that's going to work. And that's going to work. They don't play the field. There's no... There's no field of flowers to pick from. There's just one, and then one, and then one, kind of like that. I think the repression has scared people out of of their options, you know? Yeah, and, and maybe because I think it has become actually more acceptable for, for teens and young adults to jump into a sexual relationship, maybe instead of dating for weeks and months and kissing, uh, they're dating for a couple of weeks and having intercourse, and then they really are kind of locked in until the next one. Yeah, so it's it's still pretty disapproved of to be having intercourse with more than one person at a time. Right, especially for young people, it's very bad because if they get that reputation, then they're ostracized. You know, I think ostracized. I mean, it went on with us too, but I. It's very different now. If you get ostracized, it's terrible. It's horrible. And yet there are girls doing, I mean, I I just did a Tantra for Teens class a few weeks ago in Phoenix, and they told me that there are girls, little girls like 11 years old, giving blowjobs. Oh, yeah, you I know, remember t- that from elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> you I was not one of them. I didn't get there for a few more years, but I remember hearing about it. <laughs> well, well, tell us a little more, you know, so it's crazy, but I mean, it's crazy now. I think people are, I just think people are having a hard time finding their way, but there's no question even now that uh, the baby boomers have come into full swing midlife, that they're, they're lacking something in all these relationships because the divorce rate wouldn't be 50% and then the second time marriage wouldn't be divorce rate wouldn't be 80% if people were happy in monogamy. Yeah, there's no question that we're not naturally monogamous biologically. We're just not. And I, I don't think anybody disputes that. The question is, what do you do about it? And so... Uh, the, the thing that attracted me to the concept of polyamory, or as I originally called it, responsible non-monogamy, was that it was a way to honestly and ethically acknowledge, well, for me personally, who I was. I'm, I'm a woman who doesn't want to be with just one man my whole life. And... The the truth is that for me, when I really encounter somebody who meets me on all the the chakras, to go in a tantric direction for a moment, when I'm really met on every level, I'm not that interested in pursuing other relationships. But for someone um, 
with the, the complexity that I have, I don't meet that many people who can meet me on every level. There have been a handful in, in my right. lifetime. And um, actually all of them were already in committed relationships. So there I was, actually. Um, that's kind of how, you know, I really took a serious look at this, is do I want to pass up a relationship with somebody that can really show up in a way I haven't experienced because they have another partner? And I thought about that. And, and, and these were all open relationships that these people were in, so it wasn't about cheating. So I took a look at that, and I very quickly decided, yeah, absolutely, I want to do this. Well, so, that I'm that is so refreshing to hear you say it just so straight and so easy like that. I, it's it's uplifting. Now we're going to take a pause for a minute. When we come back, we'll, we're going to get more into this. I I want to just let everyone know that I'm talking to Dr. Deborah Annapol. She is one of the pioneers in polyamory. She's an author of at least two books. She is world renowned. She's traveled all over the world, and she's traveled to India with me, so I, I have firsthand knowledge of her meditation practices and her vast interest in cultures and in how people relate. So we're going to be right back with Deborah Annapol in, in a moment. But first, wondering what book you should read to jumpstart your sex life and increase your happiness? Try my book. Sex and Happiness, The Tantric Laws of Intimacy. This short, easy-to-read book will make you laugh at yourself and possibly even make you cry as you discover my tantric secrets for happiness and how they apply to you. In the book, I begin with the 10th law, Make Love in the Unknown, and then I work you all the way through laws 1 through 9 to teach you how to be in the unknown, fresh, every moment, every day. Sex and Happiness puts the innocence and love back into sex and gives Tantra the respect it deserves. It's only $19.99 paperback or $14.99 ebook. Go to sexandhappiness.com to order your copy of Sex and Happiness by me, Laurie Handlers. That's sexandhappiness.com. Well, we're back at Tantra Cafe. I'm Laurie Handlers, your host. And my guest today is Deborah Annapol, a woman who has said her mind about whether she wants to be in relationship with somebody who can meet her on all levels, somebody who can connect to all her chakras, the energy centers which, with which we create in our lives. And she just was talking about how she met people occasionally who could meet her and they happened to be in other relationships albeit open relationships, and so she had to really ask herself some hard questions. So, Deborah, what happened? Did you, you, you asked yourself the questions, and then you jumped in. You had a conversation with the two partners. How did you, how did you figure this all out? Well, you know, this has happened uh, probably three different times, and so it was a little different in each case. Um, the first time, was actually uh, a man who he was not only married, he was not in a legal group marriage because it's not legal, but he had he was living with three women. So he he not only had one partner, he had three. But Wait a minute, do I know this man? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. I'll let them. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you later off air. <laughs> Go ahead. And sorry. Actually, I met uh, I met all four of these people at once together, and and became friends with all of them. It was not just about him. And in fact, I don't know that I would have really been that interested in him if he'd been single. Honestly, I was very intrigued with with the group marriage. I hadn't at that point in my life really known anybody in a group marriage. And the four of them had a really beautiful relationship, and I always felt wonderful after interacting with them. This is before, you know, there was any romance or sexual thing happening. So, uh, 
yeah, I started out having a very good experience. And because it was my first experience, I did not realize that this is not typically the way it goes. And I have to admit, it's not typically the way it goes. I haven't met anyone else since who does polyamory as well as these people did. And uh, they were important teachers for me. But, I, you know, I, I, I can't really um, recommend to, to people that they just jump in as ultimately I did because often uh, there, there is a lot of things that are either unknown or misrepresented when interacting with a, a couple or a group. Not always, but the truth is uh, what you see is not always what you get. In this case, it was, and I had a very positive experience. How lucky. I mean, really, how lucky of you because there's a lot of people. I mean, listen, I've spent a lot of time in some urban communes recently where people are open relating and there just seems to be so much drama. Yeah, there was zero drama in this relationship. Now, they had been together 15 years already when I met them. So, you know, I gather things were um, a little rockier in the beginning, but but not really drama. And and the thing that was different about these people from most people who say they're polyamorous or want to be polyamorous is they were very clear about their motivations for getting into this. Their motivation was not sexual. Their motivation was not um, to boost their ego in, in any way. Their motivation was they were trying to get to the truth about the nature of life, actually. And they were questioning all of their assumptions and their programming. And this is, you know, they, they ended up in this relationship through just being open to what the truth was. It wasn't so did they just let picture. you in? I mean, after, you know, kind of sniffing you out and you sniffing them out, did you, are you saying, I mean, I guess where I've, I'm assuming that you're going with this is that you might have had a sexual relationship with the man or maybe all of them, I don't know, but you became part of their group and it worked out like you were nurtured somehow by these four people and and you connected sexually somehow with one yeah. or more of them. I I ended up having a sexual relationship with the man. I did um experiment also with some of the women who were uh very clear they were bisexually oriented and that was a new experience for me, which at the time I was not that comfortable with. And, you know, they encouraged me to not go outside of my comfort zone. And um, I, I I was very nurtured. And I, to this day, I would say this is one of the best relationships I've probably had um, with men or women. Certainly with both together. And wow. As you might imagine, it was a little bit of a shock to me to find out that this is not always how it goes. <laughs> but <laughs> when did you have that rude awakening? <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes people come to my workshops, and I carefully orchestrate, and you probably do too, a situation in which people are able to uh, expand some of their emotional and physical boundaries and connect with a group in a way that feels very safe and nurturing. And I, I warn people, you know, don't necessarily go right home and try this at home. It may not work the same way. And right. they don't usually listen. <laughs> and they they go home and... and you know, naively try to do the same thing without realizing what it took to put it together. And that's kind of the situation I was in relating after, relating with other people after being with this group. Um, naively assuming that 
it was as easy as it looked, and it wasn't. And again, I think what really makes the difference is the level of spiritual maturity. And people trying to have polyamorous relationships from a place of um, egoic self-centeredness are going to struggle. Now, there's other reasons you can struggle, too, having to do with not being raised in an environment that provided role models and having to make it up as you go along, having to deal with the judgments of other people. Um, you know, there's a or lot jealousy. of... Or just plain jealousy. And just plain jealousy. Yeah, that kind of brings us to the chapter I was working on, uh, <laughs> which there's no question that jealousy is uh, the, I called it the gatekeeper, or I called it the, the great teacher. Uh, but it's it's the gatekeeper. You can't practice polyamory if you're completely overwhelmed with jealousy. And over the years, I've found ways to coach people to find a balance between managing their jealousy, that is, seeing what triggers it and negotiating with their partners to avoid the biggest triggers, but also allowing some of those jealous feelings in moderation to come in and be used as a basis for self-inquiry to see what is it that's disturbing me so much. And, you know, I've just been, been looking at the work of David Butts, who's a psychologist who wrote a book a few years back uh, in which he suggests, he calls it the dangerous passion, and it's subtitled, Why Jealousy is as Necessary as Love and Sex. And his position is that jealousy is not only inevitable, it's basically a good thing, even though it's frequently um, the cause of murder and domestic violence and <laughs> other good things. But he so, says it's good because it, it um, has served the function and evolution of helping us uh, guard our genetic um, material so that men particularly have a very hard time really knowing who the father is or whether they're the father of their mate's children. Right. And so he says that the jealousy is very adaptive in keeping right. other men away and frightening the woman that he'll kill her if she goes with anybody else. So you well, know, wait that's a second. I just want I just want you to tell this guy's name is David what? Bus B U S S. D Duff like like D U Frank boy. Frank. D is in boy. Oh B U F F. S. E-U-S-S, like a school bus. Oh, okay. Or a okay. tour bus, but there's two S's. And he's saying, you're telling me, that he's saying that jealousy, which could come close to murder, is is real and true and and good in that it protects uh, the DNA codes and the, the genetic lines of, so that people know who their offspring are. Well, no, he's not advocating murder, you know. He's saying that's the extreme case. But uh, a more moderate jealousy, he says, is is uh, a beneficial thing. And that he, he believes jealousy evolved. Like, you know, we have jealous ancestors because those who were good at scaring away the competition passed on their genes. I see. I see what you mean. That's, that's, I see what his, you mean. Uh, that's his case. The only... Our problem with that is that, as I understand it, it's only fairly recently, and we don't really know, but a lot of people have suggested, experts have suggested that it's only fairly recently that humans figured out that the, the um, well, that intercourse results in pregnancy. People didn't used to know that the the man had anything to do with the woman's pregnancy. And we've all heard about you know, existing um, indigenous people who, even though they may know who the biological father is, 
they don't really care because they consider that the, the whole village is responsible for the children. You know, you have just said to me what is, you have just said what I have thought. I had no proof. I just thought that there are festivals like the Beltane Festival, which is a famous one, but there are festivals where there were rites of passage, especially certain times of the year, like I would probably say spring and maybe even fall, but I think spring to fertilize the crops that were being planted, where the women would make themselves available to all the men in a village, per se, or in a town, per se, and they would have multiple partners in any given night. This is my fantasy, by the way, so I could be completely off, but this is how it comes into my mind. They would have multiple partners on any given night, you know, like moon rights festivals or whatever, and then a woman, the woman will become pregnant, but they would never know who, which one impregnated them since they would have had multiple sex on that exactly. particular evening as, as part of a ritual. And then everyone exactly. would raise whatever child. Is this true? Exactly. Yeah, this is not just your imagination. This is fairly well documented and still exists in, in a few rare isolated cultures. And I've just been reading Dolores La Chapelle's Sacred Land, Sacred Sex, where she talks um, in great detail about these rituals, which wow. you can see remnants of them even today. Like she, she talks about the, the kissing under the mistletoe at Christmas. You know, that's what's left of what was once a festival, which was, as you describe, um, a, a free time for people to have sex with whoever. And all at the same time, out in the open, having fun, having fun, and procreation was a result of them having fun and experimenting with all these different people and like that. So right. this is amazing. We're gonna, we're just going to pause here again for a moment. When we come back, we're going to pick right up where we left off. Uh, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Tantra Cafe, a program for spiritual enlightenment. I'm Laurie Hamlers, your host, and my guest today is Deborah Annapol, a person who is well-read, well insp- so inspirational. She's been on the field of Tantra and in the field of exploring human relationships, teaching, writing, helping, all counseling, every which way for the last 20 years. And we'll be right back because we're just discussing ancient rituals where people weren't possessive and then how healthy jealousy came in. So stay tuned. Here's some breaking news. Tantric Taurus, the film I'm starring in, is a documentary about ten people seeking enlightenment who hired me to take them on an adventure in India. You can soon purchase this DVD or become a fan of Tantric Tourists on Facebook and find out how to get your copy. You can visit tantrictourist.com and this film is the winner of debut features in many film festivals that it's been entered into. It's won awards in the London East End Film Festival. It won the Golden Palm Award at the Mexico Film Festival and Tantric Tourist, here's the news, will be featured at the Asheville Film Festival coming up November 12th and at the Nevada Film Festival in Las Vegas, coming up November 21st. I'll be there walking the red carpet on November 21st, and I invite you all to join me in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information, go to www.tantrictourists.com. That's tantrictourists.com. Well, we're back. You're listening to Tantra Cafe. I'm Laurie Handlers, your host, and I'm here today with my guest, Deborah Annapol. And we just, we kind of left at a hot moment there where people could play having sex in a ritual and then find out that they became pregnant and not necessarily know by who. And Deborah's telling me this is well documented and I only suspected it. So <laughs> this just shows which one of us is a researcher. And which one of us just makes stuff up? <laughs> so, Deborah, tell more. So, what? Okay, so how did jealousy come in then? 
Well, so, you know, the, the evolutionary psychologists, biologists want to argue that, that it's hardwired, that, that it's our genetic heritage. And I think that while there's clearly some biological basis, primarily having to do with guarding territory, that we learn, we're conditioned that jealousy is appropriate. And if we were taught otherwise and conditioned otherwise, jealousy would be much less prevalent. We have to learn that a partner is territory. And, you know, generally objectifying your partner is not seen as a good thing. It's part of our our legacy from a patriarchal culture where women really were property and they were very clearly the property first of their fathers then of their husbands and and a dowry and they came with a dowry too so they were property and they brought property they they were property they brought property but the property belonged to their husband at least as long as he um, fulfilled the marriage contract so I think this is really, you know, primarily where jealousy came in. And it's consistent also with, um, you know, Helen Fisher points out in her very popular book that challenges the the biological basis for monogamy, although she doesn't think polyamory is, is an alternative. But she points out that the commandment in the Bible about shalt not commit adultery only applies to having sex with a married woman. It does not apply to, obviously, um, the patriarchs. Most of them had more than one wife or wives and many consorts. That was totally permitted. And in the Jewish tradition, actually, it was even permitted for women to have more than one lover as long as they were not um, religiously married. They, there was a more of a of an informal marriage, similar to the, the pagan hand fasting. And if a woman chose that type of union, there was no prohibition on uh, her having more than one partner, even if he was married, because married men could have other lovers as long as the lover wasn't a married woman. It was all about property and inheritance and the dealing with, with the man problem of not knowing who their biological children were once they decided that was important, once they had property that they wanted to leave to their uh, offspring. So, but, well, so I, I think it's to, relatively recent. Well, I, I, I mean, it feels to me like everything you're saying is actually proving. I mean, when I think of you, you know, and I know you. So when I think of you and I think of conversations that we've had and a program we did much earlier, I think of you as an advocate of this honesty, you know, coming out and discussing it, having straight up conversations about the desire for more than one person for a variety of reasons, not necessarily only sexual, for uh, all the nine ch- the the seven chakras every, and then the nine chakras all everything. But what you're saying right now and and this proof that people are coming out within the things in the Bible and the Jewish religion, I'm actually gonna I'm gonna be as crazy as to say that I don't think a thing has changed. I think people are still having multiple lovers. They're just not honest about it, and there's no place in society. Society is tightened up. And what you said before has been so rigorous in uh, squashing impulses and in making people go inside and in pushing down sexual urge, using guilt, using shame. But I, I mean, when we think about it, powerful men are pretty much always having affairs. You know, the Kennedys, Clinton, whoever else, the guy in France who's now married to the supermodel. All these people, these men are doing it. Probably tons of women are doing it, and they are having a type of of poly- polyamory. They're just simply not open about it. There's, right. there's no, 
Right. So I don't want to call it polyamory because I want to reserve that term for being open about it. Okay. (laughs) But, yeah. (laughs) They're not – people generally are not monogamous. And, you know, you touched on something I really have been thinking a lot about lately as well, and that is that one of the really upsetting things for me about the polyamory scene today is that I see a lot of people – using that as a cover for their sexual addictions. The thing is, those sexual addictions, for the most part, are a result of the sexual repression and uh, other pathological aspects of the culture that we're raised in. I think if we were raised in, in a healthier way, there wouldn't be hardly any sex addiction. It's kind of like um, people who, who are raised in, in homes where alcohol is used responsibly, not abused, but or people who grew up in cultures where consciousness-altering drugs are used in a ritual way and uh, with, with guidance from the wisest people, they don't end up abusing drugs. Well, there's a respect. There's a respect. Yeah. So I think it's the same thing with sex. If if people were raised to respect sexuality, and if they were supported in being responsible in their sexuality, I don't think we'd be seeing much sex addiction. And, of course, we wouldn't be seeing as many dysfunctional relationships either. Yeah, or as much suffering, <laughs> as much suffering over relating. Oh my God. Yeah, you know, you know, it's not it's not a happy experience for a lot of people. <laughs> but uh, at the same, and and more and more people actually are choosing to remain single. That doesn't mean that they're celibate or that they don't have relationships. But more and more people are just saying, you know, um, this doesn't work. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I just read the statistics before you came on the show. I did a little statistical search to find out, and it said that uh, this year and last year, the rate of marriage has gone down. I don't remember the numbers, but the rate of marriage has gone down, even though the population of people on the planet has gone up. The rate of marriage has gone down. I personally, I mean, I, I feel that I'm a pioneer in that particular respect because I never married. I've been engaged a few times, but I really would always look at the person, no matter who it was or how much in love with him I was, I'd kind of roll over in bed and go, another 30, 40 years with this person? I don't think so. I, I can't. And plus, you know, by the time the women's movement rolled in, I felt I was property. You know, just what we just discussed, property and dowries and all that. You know, I under the eyes of the law until until recently or maybe, you know, the woman was property. And I wasn't never going to be anybody's property. And I couldn't see myself staying with one person, being being entertained, being enthralled, being desirous of the same person for that long. I mean, by the time two or three years was over, I was bored. And and I loved these people. I didn't really want to leave them, but I, they couldn't stimulate me. Well, you sound so I, like a good candidate for polyamory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I listen. Polyamory is becoming bigger and bigger. I mean, there's more poly conventions and more poly meetings and more poly meetups and more, and so many people that I know now are expressing that that's who and what they want to be. So, yeah, I'm exploring it. I mean, I'm exploring it in my head right now. Uh, What is it and how can it work? And, yes, and also since I met you. I mean, we've had had very straight conversations about it, and it's created my wheels turning. Hmm, possibly this is an alternative. But I don't, I'm very opposed, I'm resistant, I guess, to calling myself anything. I've n- I never wanted to call myself monogamous, and I don't want to call myself polyamorous. I guess I want to have the option to choose in the moment. Yeah, well, I feel the same way. So I totally get where you're coming from on that. And 
it'll be really wonderful when the whole world is in that place, that they're less interested in labeling themselves than just being present to the truth of what's happening. I mean, I remember when I was first in Tantra, somebody who I knew kept saying, actually, it was like, it felt like, I felt like I was being rigorously uh, enrolled, but I wasn't enrolled into open relating. You know, open relating was the only way to go. It was the only thing. It was the thing. And if I wasn't doing it, then I, I you know, because I was in a relationship then and I didn't want to open relate because I, 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 you know, to be quite honest with you, I didn't trust my partner to tell the truth. So I didn't want to open it up to open relating. And uh, I was badgered. So I, I have a resistance, like you, like I said to you before, I have a resistance to calling myself anything. But I am curious and I am open and I am, you know, in my life now, and I imagine this is the same for you, whoever we were when we were kids experimenting, now we're adults, and I'll just speak for myself, but I know you'll chime in. I'm so secure in who I am. I'm so secure in what I bring to the party. I'm not so jealous or envious or thinking somebody's better or someone could take anything away from me. I don't have any of that stuff that I had growing up, you know, when I, when, even though I was really great, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted some hair like somebody else. I wanted a body like somebody else. I wanted this like somebody else. I don't want any of that. I love who I am. And so I'm in, in the secure place that I am now, I feel like I could almost do anything and experiment with anything. Well, that sounds a lot like the, the classic polyamorous personality. <laughs> and I call it classic, but actually that's, that's kind of a joke because the reality is that um, there's been almost no research or even serious intellectual inquiry into what a polyamorous personality would be. But there is one. I think you just described it. Wow. Well, we're gonna we're we actually are gonna pause for one more moment, and then we're gonna come back and talk about that and find out how people can get in touch with you. So, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Tantra Cafe. This is Laurie Handlers. I'm your host, and this is a program for spiritual enlightenment. And my guest today is Deborah Annapol, and she has a lot to say in a learned way about what it is to relate to more than one person. She's written books on the subject, and you're going to find out how to get in touch with her, so stay tuned. Are you somebody who loves adventure? Would you like to create more adventure in your love life? Join me and Gino Allegria on our Red Hot Tantra Tour to India this January 2010. You'll study six days of Red Hot Tantra in a palace in Ajmer, in the state of Rajasthan, India's most colorful state. You'll receive six days of classroom instruction and then practice together with your beloved in the privacy of your grand palace accommodations. When the course is over, you'll visit the holy city of Pushkar. You'll see the world's greatest tribute to romance, the Taj Mahal in Agra. And, of course, you'll tour the world's famous Kama Sutra temples in Kajaraho. There you'll have ample time and opportunity to see the world's renowned temples up close, and you'll even get to meditate inside. When you return to Delhi, you'll tour the city or shop in the Paraganj, one of the world's oldest markets. If you'd like to stay on in India, we have a variety of tours you can choose from. For more information about the Red Hot Tantra Palace Tour, call me at 202-686-7440. That's 202-686-7440 or write to me, laurie at butterflyworkshops.com. Well, we're back and we're rounding down the hour. I'm with Deborah Annapole, my guest. She's an author. She has written numerous books and she's writing another one right now. And it's, a, it's exactly where she's at in the book. She's looking at jealousy in in the world of polyamory, challenges, things that scare people. 
And, of course, Deborah has been to India with me, so we might say a little something about that. I don't know. So, Deborah. Yeah, your tour sounds fabulous. Your, your new program sounds fabulous. <laughs> if I had a partner to go with, I'd be tempted to go. Wow, I would love for you to go. Yeah, we're going to teach the Maituna ritual and other things. Uh, and the palace is amazing. The palace is one of those. Lo- Actually, it's owned by the people who owned that lovely place we stayed at in in uh, Jaipur, that beautiful place where we ate outside in the garden. And uh, Oh, yeah, that was lovely. <laughs> Well, those two women and their family, they own this palace in Ajmer. It's not that far from there. And each person will have one of those gorgeous rooms where there's like a canopy bed and beautiful stuff. So, and because we know we couldn't really do a sex ritual in one big room in India. It wouldn't be permitted. <laughs> no, so. except maybe in Pune. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's go back because you, you actually, you reminded me now too of you, you had, when we were together in India, you had a session with somebody. You did a private session with somebody who was in an open marriage. And that was an Indian person. And Indians don't usually do that. What, what was that like? What did he say? How did he get to do that? Well, I, this was not probably your, your typical Indian guy, but I, I somehow, well, actually, over the Internet, connected with a whole network of um, what I might call New Age Indian people. And India, in case your listeners are not aware, the the Indians are even more sexually repressed than Americans for the most part. Oh, Um, no question, no question. You know, it's like don't show any skin and um, don't talk about sex, and it's it's quite... um, uh, different than it was in the old days. Um, but in the, uh, you, have, you know, there's pockets of, of new age people. And so this guy was one of part, one of those pockets. And it's interesting because he was actually um, in an arranged marriage which is common still in, in India. He and his wife had been paired up by the, their parents and, and the, the village elders. And even though it was arranged, uh, they had come to, to really love each other and care about each other. But sexually, they weren't that compatible. And... So she ended up uh, taking another lover who was a friend of both of theirs, but they were always very honest with each other about this. And he struggled with it a lot, but basically, uh, and they had a child together, and he was really willing to do whatever it would take to keep the family intact, including uh, get through his jealousy, which was why he contacted me, and then in working with him on the jealousy, it became clear that you know, one of the issues in the relationship was that their sex life just wasn't that great, and as is true in, in our culture as well, and in, I really, having traveled the whole world, I see the same kinds of relationship dynamics showing up wherever I go. They're really interesting. They do seem to be cross-cultural. And so this is one of those cross-cultural, universal situations in which the man has been taught that his sexuality is not okay, and so he doesn't really bring it to the relationship with a wife. And the woman doesn't find it very sexy when the man doesn't show or shows up without his um, sexual power. So this was what was going on there, and I worked with uh, him on that, and he found it very helpful, but uh, I later heard from him that she had decided to to, uh, not continue with the polyamory, even though he was open to it, and uh, went to be with the other man. Oh, my goodness. 
you know, that put an end to his struggle with jealousy. He no longer had to, to struggle with that. But I think if it had been up to him, he was willing to struggle with jealousy for forever virtually if it meant that uh, his family could stay together. And he was willing to add another man to the relationship if the family could stay together. That's so, so I mean, that's so, situation. that's so unique. I mean, it is so unique given that it's India. It really is unique um, that he was willing to deal with another man. That's amazing. It's a wonderful story. So, so here we are. What, you know, we're, we're kind of down to the last minutes and stuff and we're, we're talking about polyamory and you've said that I'm a good candidate. <laughs> and I, because that's before what I'm now calling the alpha problem, and I'm afraid we don't have time to to get into that. But maybe uh, maybe we'll do another another one of these, and I can talk about the alpha problem. Um, yeah, I like this. I love this. I love this interview with you. I love talking with you about this because I know that you have given it a lot of thought, and I know you don't jump into things. I know you do your research. I know that you. That you really take it seriously. Tell us, tell us so uh, how people can get in touch with you. Give us the name of your books, your website, everything, because I want people to be able to get in touch with you. This is Deborah Annapol, and Deborah, how how would people go about getting in touch with you? Well, my main website, lovewithoutlimits.com, is uh, an excellent place to start. There's a lot of information there. I've got a, a workshop coming up in Bermuda next. March that will be up there soon. You can get my books, Polyamory, The New Love Without Limits, and The Seven Natural Laws of Love and Compersion. And uh, when the new book is out, sometime in 2010, I don't know exactly when, I'm sure that um, information will be there. I I probably won't be selling it on the site because I'm not publishing it, but there will be a link to the publisher's site where you can buy it. And there's a lot of articles and uh, resources for people exploring polyamory. And if people are interested in a private coaching session, they can either email me at Taj, that's like in the Taj Mahal, but just Taj at lovewithoutlimits.com, or phone me at area code 415-507-1739. I am presently in the Hawaii time zone, so if you're calling me, please take that into account. (laughs) And I do love to work with people on the phone or on Skype because I'm often able to save them years of agony in just a couple of hours of coaching. And that makes me feel really good that all my difficult experiences are being put to good use. So this is great because I started out saying, you know, who would want another partner because some people call the pursuit of multiple partners polyagony. And you've just come right back around and said that you can save people agony if they would just call you. So, and I, just because of what we talked about tonight, I might just call you (laughs) to talk about what should I do. But I, I want to thank you so much. I really want to thank you. It was short notice, but also I just thank you. It's so delightful, and it's so filled. My experience is so filled with new exploration and new ignition when I speak to you. So, Deborah Annapol, I really thank you so much for being my guest this evening. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. It's delightful to talk with you again. Yeah, and I hope we, I hope we do India again together or, you know, somewhere. Bali, Japan, all the things that we talked about. Thank you so much again. I want to let people know to stay tuned. Next week we'll be talking about the movie Tantric Tourists, my tour to India where I take people to visit the heart of India, and I'll be on the line with my director and producer from the film, Tantric Taurus, the same name, and um, we'll talk about some of the film festivals that it's been in and how we went about doing it and how crazy it was and all kinds of things. So please come back next week to Tantra Cafe. And for now, this is Laurie Handlers.
saying namaste from Tondra Cafe. Thank you so much and good night.